Hey guys, we're here with Jerry Robinson. Um, he's a, uh, a tech developer, a martial artist, uh, and you just told me a musician. A musician too. A musician as well. Yes. So we, of course, originally we were like, oh, let's, uh, let's talk about the, the technology and everything that you're into. But I really want to get into all of that, if we can. Like, Absolutely. We'll, we'll do our best to get all of that covered in that, the hour. That sounds or good. So, so with, the, with the technology, can you just briefly talk about what it is that you are currently doing and like what it is that your day-to-day -day -day looks like in your job? Okay. So pr primarily, I'm a software architect. I design systems from scratch and then figure out how to implement them. And in some cases, I do the coding myself. And in some cases, I'm putting together a team and have multiple people that work together to accomplish whatever the end is. Kind of depends on the kind of project. And I've done, it bo done that both in a sort of corporate setting, sort of. And I say sort of because it was a company that I founded with someone else, this last company that I was working with. And um, we had a big staff. That one was 40. And there were 20 of those who were in the technical design team. And then I'm also, and as I'm currently doing, work just as a consultant on my own. And I have a, a sort of concentric circles of closeness of people that I've worked with over right, the years. Right, right, right. Pull in the right people for the project, whatever that happens to be. Okay. Um, actually, a lot uh -huh. like you guys do. You know, just, yeah, right, it's right, a, right. what does this take? It needs those four people, and that becomes the team for it. But okay. for the most part, most of the stuff, there, I have a... a Someone who was my lead engineer for Dacom Inc., which was the last company that I founded and was working with. And he and I have been software partners now for going on 18 years. Uh, and uh, we have one designer who sort of came along for the ride. And so the three of us end up doing all kinds of things, often app projects from scratch. A customer comes and says, I have this idea. And very often that idea is incredibly vague. I have yeah, this very yeah. vague idea. Right, and right, then right. we go from that to turning it and saying, do you kind of mean this? Yeah, and yeah, then yeah, yeah. You know, after a few of the rounds of no, no, I mean something else and getting there, we get to a concept. And then basically I take that concept, figure out what the, the data structures behind it need to be and what the user experience likely needs to be and mock that up with a number of tools. Um, that, uh, that it's a wonderful time for that sort of stuff. You've got so many options. And then, then the next presentation to the potential customer is, do you mean something like this? this? And you can right. really actually see yeah, it. Yeah, and then yeah, they yeah. can say yes or no. And anyway, it evolves from, from right, there. Right, right, right. And so where did, you, where did that all start? Oh, boy, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. I think that the, the real answer to that is it started really, really early because I loved electronics. And so um, you know, there have been, been three through lines in my life, music, martial arts, and computers, which I would generalize more as just technology. Because right. I started out, this was, this was long enough ago that you could actually build things out of discrete components. Right. Well, you and call them so, electronics, not computers. Right, exactly. Right. right. At the right, beginning. Right. Yeah. And so there was that whole period. And so I, I sort of went through the entire evolution of the stuff that was before computers, where you would build... Uh, actually build logic circuits, but those were big, big relays that you would use and things, these big mechanical, electromechanical things. And then there was sort of the first rudimentary set of chips that you could use. And there was a, a period when the whole idea of personal computer was starting to coalesce 
and there were kits you could build. There was a really famous one called the Altair 88, which was a little computer <laughs> kit that had a bunch of switches on the front, and you programmed it literally by flipping the switches to set one byte of code and then pressed input, and then the next byte of code pressed input, and six weeks later you had programmed something that was the equivalent of five lines of code, but it worked. It actually right, did something. Right, right, right. So I go all the way back to playing with that kind of stuff and then have just evolved over the last I mean, 30 years doing all kinds of different projects um, and, and falling into some of them. There's, uh, there was one kind of interesting one in sort of the middle time. I, I, I played with computer stuff and electronics in high school, went off on the road with a band for three years, toured all over the country. When I got done with that... Um, I, I what was, kind of I, music? What kind of music? Sorry, I don't mean to No, that's you. fine. Um, uh, for want of a better term, orchestral rock, like the Moody Blues. Okay. So okay. we had... There were, there were four of us in the band, and we had 28 instruments between the four of us. Holy cow. And from the audience's perspective, it looked like we were just randomly playing things because they were hung on a big board yeah, in the yeah, back yeah, of the yeah. stage, and we would just kind of grab things and start playing. And so it gave the impression that this was just this random ad lib yeah, yeah, it wasn't yeah, yeah. it was orchestrated but that's awesome anyway, what a cool know. idea what a it cool was, idea it was great fun that's awesome so there was there was the, the years on the band and then i was up at stanford for a while and when i got back to los angeles after that i had a, a old friend from high school who had started a computer company because now we were in the this was the the early 80s so this was the beginning of there really being personal computers that people could use right and one of the places that personal computers were used really early on was in doctor's offices okay um, because doctors could afford yeah, these right. very expensive personal yeah, computers yeah, yeah. in these days and um uh, i happened to be in this friend of mine's office one afternoon i had done some coding for him just on the side for fun um he had at that point the number one medical billing package in the United States. It was the one that was being adopted all mm -hmm. over the place. And he got a call from a, a fairly famous group back then. They, they're not as famous anymore. They were called EDS. They were run by a guy called Ross Perot, who actually ran for president a couple of times. Whoa. And he did a lot of the sort of service bureau consulting for IBM and, and companies mm -hmm. of that size. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. would be the one who actually, his company, actually wrote the software. So he called my friend because he, as EDS, represented Blue Shield and all of and Blue Cross and all of the computing that was done. And the folks at Blue Shield had this crazy idea that if they could just get rid of those pesky paper insurance forms, they could save a lot of money. And so this was the very beginnings of wanting to try to be able to submit insurance information from doctor's offices right True. to the Blue Shield mainframes. Okay. So I'm in the office, and Ross Perot calls my friend John Stuppy and says, we know you have the number one medical building package in the U.S. We would like to work with you to implement electronic claim submission yeah, yeah, for the first time. And they said, uh, you know, do, can you have your, your telecommunications expert fly to Texas tomorrow, actually, if possible, to talk to us? And John put his hand over the mouthpiece, and he said, do you want to be our telecommunications expert? And I went, sure. I knew nothing about telecommunications programming, literally zero. So I went out and bought a suit because I didn't have a suit. All I had was my, my geese from working out in martial arts. And, and, That's what you wore and, to like the and, office and everything? Yeah, because it was like, my office. So yeah. I, I could just, you know. Right, right. Actually, more often than I would sit around in shorts and program, which was even more comfortable. That's awesome. But, yeah. That's awesome. So I, I went out and bought a suit. I got on a plane, flew to Texas, and sat in this 
big boardroom with um, all of their techs and all of the suits from the mm-hmm. company who mm-hmm. were discussing how this project was going to work. <laughs> and there was this big spec document about that tall that was like in the middle of the table. And they're all discussing it and they're having this deep discussion. And you're just sitting and like, there just Right. Like, and I had no idea what they were talking about. I yeah. mean, at all. Like, yeah, I mean, right. superficially mm-hmm. knew what they were trying mm-hmm. to do, but yeah. in terms of the technical discussion, no clue. And at the end of the meeting, they all turned as if it had been choreographed and you were shooting a movie scene. They all turned and looked at me and said, so, can you do it? And I went, sure. And they pushed the spec document down the table thing. to me, that whole four-inch thick thing, which I picked up and took home. And then, you know, after I, I have a little nausea from having said yes to something I didn't yeah. know how to do, yeah. <laughs> I learned how to do it. I basically taught myself telecommunications programming. How? And, um, how? There was no Google in those days. Yes. So that was, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah so, you were trying to build yeah, that. <laughs> right. So so there were two things, two aspects of that. The, the, the concept of doing telecommunications programming existed. The thing they actually wanted to do had never been done before. So this was, this was the technical wild, wild west. And what? so, I, you know, so I, I went and got books and I read what I could read and I experimented a lot and basically figured out the ins and outs of how these two computers were going to have to talk to each other. And you know, thereafter followed these moments which I always just used to love because I, I would look at them in my own head as to what was happening. So I'm sitting in my shorts on the floor in my living room with the computer in front of me on the phone, conference calling, what I knew was a lab full of guys in suits and white coats, all being very formal and talking to each other, trying to figure out when the, when the, thing, the computers were first talking to each other. And we would have conversations where they would say things like, well, we just got a hex 11 and we shouldn't have gotten one after that last sector. So what do you think is going on? And I would you know, look at the code and say, okay, I think I know what it is here. Let's try this. Is that better? Okay, it's gone. Good. We're on. And then, you know, on to the next thing. But the, this picture of this, the informality of me sitting on my floor, knowing that I was dealing with this big lab at the other yeah. end, I had to really resist laughing like 90% yeah. of the time. So yeah. anyway. And so, and so, it, and so what did that just turned into more and more that, of those calls, and then well, it was eventually like, hey, you did it. Yeah, that, exactly. We did it. It took uh, took a little under a year to finish the project, and in the course of that, my friend said, "Hey, can't you build something while you're doing that? Would allow us to remotely control all of our 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 customers' computers too." I said, "Sure to that too," and figured out how to do it, and. And he said, oh, and also, you know, they seem to be really interested in finance. Could you, like, maybe write a general ledger program that would work on the computer? This was before Quicken. And so I said, <laughs> sure. So you know, I, the, the technical side of it led me to build the, the first instances of a whole thing, a whole bunch of things that became areas of software that became the basis for companies, like, like the, the ledger was the same idea as what became Quicken. But I was too dumb when it came to marketing to realize to like, oh, I was built, I could have made I could, of, yeah. yeah. So I, I missed the boat totally on the financial side of what that could have meant, but had this, this incredible time in, from a learning perspective and, and just a technical fun perspective because none of this stuff had ever been done. Right. Well, you probably just got like eight years of schooling yeah. in like less than a year. That was exactly it. That is insane. Yeah. So then right after, right after you got done with that, was that something that you were like, oh, I'm just going to go to something else? Or did well, you continue down y- that road? Y- yes, actually. I, I mean, while I was doing that, I was actually chief engineer of a little studio in Hollywood called KSR. And, so I'm, and which you're is just a, stressing me out with how <laughs> much you're doing at one time. That's yes. insane. Yes. Oh, and I should, I should say something else, too, because the question of inevitably will come up 
what sets you on the road. The yes. real answer to that question, and this is honestly mm -hmm. the answer is, I didn't want to wear a tie. That's it. That's the basis of I all of that. this. I love so, that. Yeah. I'm going to write that down. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yes. And so, <laughs> okay. right. And, okay. it's, and it's, it's hard to make a living and to make something work when you don't want to wear a tie. Of course. And so you kind of have to do multiple things at the same time. Right. So multiple sources of So you just threw that suit away immediately? Yeah, no, I had it. It was in the closet in case I ever had to go back to Texas. But uh, uh, so, which, so right after that, right yeah. when you got done, what was, so what right was like when, the step? So right when I finished that... Uh, let's see. So it was sandwiched. While that was going on, I was doing the, mm -hmm. I was doing the working at the recording studio as well. And it was, a, it was a small studio down the street from Capitol Records, and we used to get spill work from them. So like I did Janet Jackson's original demo, for instance. Not any of her albums, but I did her original demo. Because, um, yeah, which is kind of a weird... I won't, I won't call that a claim to fame because it's okay. not. Okay, <laughs> I would. I would. But, yeah. but it, was a, it was a fun moment. A yeah. lot, and lots of weird stuff happened at that studio because we were right there. And so all the rooms at Capitol would be busy and they'd, yeah. they'd need to record you know, the bass part for Stevie Wonder's next blah. And there was no room, so they'd send somebody over. So, and, so you, went from, you went from playing with that computer to going on tour to developing right. that... Almost, other way around. So I was on tour... Went, finished, after, after being on the road, went to Stanford. I was up there for five years. And, and actually, just to make the story even crazier, I wrote my first book when I was up there on martial arts. And then got back to LA, and then was in the, working in the recording studio. And while working in the studio, I went to visit that friend of mine. And that's what sort of started the, the, the computer stuff. The okay, yeah. okay. And, and what, so, was, what, what and, was that that you right. were doing once you met up with your friend again? That, um, well, that was the Texas Project. So okay. that's when the whole oh, medical, I, I see that was the whole medical what, building thing. And then saying. toward the, I worked with him for a couple of years. And at that same time, that was the moment at which I was, the, my martial arts and bodybuilding interests and stuff led me to try to, I was trying to find another way to, to make some money and market something. And so I wrote um, a, I took one of the chapters out of that book that I wrote while I was at Stanford. It was a chapter on abdominal conditioning and retitled it Legendary Abs. <laughs> and uh, Boom, yeah, clickbait. Right. Yeah, That's exactly. what that later became. Right. It, yes, I wish it had been the internet days. In, th in those days, there was no internet yet. So, yeah, right. And took that and tried to, uh, to, to market it. And I, after a couple of incredibly bad false starts, we're back to the stupid marketing, don't really get how to do that. Yeah, so stuff far it sounds point. like you're an idiot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just, yeah, just, <laughs> just that aspect, yes, could not, you know, just like thick Stop skull, it. wasn't Stop that going it. through. Stop, Stop. So, you can't say that after so, everything okay. you've already told me. <laughs> so the initial, the initially, I tried to sell that course by running display ads. First thought was, we need a big audience. So I ran an ad in a thing called Money's Worth Magazine which had absolutely nothing to do with fitness. And of course, that meant that the audience had absolutely no interest in fitness. Yeah. <laughs> and so spent money to reach a big audience, none of whom cared about this, and there was no response. Zero, not okay. one order. And then said, hmm, maybe we should be advertising in things like martial arts and bodybuilding magazines where go. people actually, yeah, yeah, so it's, so, it's beginning yeah. to penetrate. Who do martial yeah, arts and right. fitness, it's, right. Yeah, right. and uh, first month, of the ad in Muscle and Fitness magazine for just that one course, sixteen thousand in revenue. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so that was aha, <laughs> aha. It did work. Context, yeah, context is, is everything. Wow. wow. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and so that was the beginning of what became actually the next fourteen years, which was I had a publishing company called Health for Life that specialized in 
we called them courses, not books, because in many cases we would try to produce the shortest thing that would teach you what you needed, rather than doing the typical thing that you have to do when you're writing a book, which is you have an idea which is four pages long, and you write a 120-page book with you know, 70 pages in front of the four-page idea, and then 70. you know 70 pages after the four-page idea. I didn't know that. <laughs> so that there's something that somebody can go, oh, this is a heavy book. I'll pay for this. Yeah. Because right. people won't pay for four pages, no matter what. Well, huh. we proved them wrong on that. The original legendary app course was 22 pages long, spiral bound. We sold like two and a half million copies of it through the martial arts and bodybuilding magazines at the original, let's see, it was 9.95 for those 22 pages. And we had the lowest return rate in the industry for anything because it was actually the information people wanted. And they liked the fact that it was short. Now, if they'd been able to see it before they ordered it, they wouldn't have ordered it because that yeah. mentality of spiral bound, right? It's got to it's got to be a book. This doesn't weigh enough. Yeah. I'm not going to pay for this this thing. But then they look through it and they're, they're like, oh, this is everything I need. Right. They were buying based on the concept, and then the concept worked. Um, it was actually picked up and used by a bunch of sports teams around the U.S. The Oakland A's used it, and anyway, a bunch of people did. And uh, um, so that was the next 14 years. I basically spent 14 years writing books and videos and such. Um, and selling them via display ads in magazines. How, how, old, how old were you when? I was 20, let's see. I started that company when I was 24. Because I was, I was a bit, I was like four years behind age-wise from where you would normally be because of the four years on the road with the band. And so. Yeah, can't let those four years yes. go. What, you would have right. been ancient. You would have been 20. <laughs> yes. You would have been 20. Right, yeah. Oh, right. yeah, right. way yeah. late. Yeah. yeah, you started at 24. You were like yes. an old man. There it was. That is insane. Yeah. So what does what does Legendary app, how do I get Legendary yes, I can actually, I can get you a copy. It's it's not in print <laughs> anymore. I've been thinking about doing a digital version of it for a while now. And there, there by the way, is another one of those extreme misses. You know, we're, we're talking about some of the successes. and. Right. Um, but but there was this extreme miss in terms of the original marketing of, of the software stuff where I could have I could have capitalized on any one of those things yeah, but yeah, yeah. didn't understand how to do it and there's a the, the, that that lesson that one has to learn that marketing is really everything I mean you have to have the product it can't you can't not have a product at all but you can have a great product and have no success if you don't huh. understand the marketing side so you know there's there's a there's an important lesson in that in that whole thing, which I, by the way, didn't completely learn the first time around because then the internet finally emerged. This was you know, late 80s, yeah. early 90s. And I looked at it and said, this is just another distribution channel. This is like another way to sell, sell stuff. The economics aren't gonna be any different. You still have to ship from a warehouse and there's still gonna be all of the same kind of expenses. And I just didn't get the scaling, the what was going to happen because of the volume of people that were be, going to be exposed, huh. and what that was going to mean to the economic picture, because you were not dealing with just 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 circulation of a magazine, you were dealing with millions. Yeah, right, right, right. So I missed the boat on it. There was a moment when that Health for Life company could have been the first company to go into internet marketing for bodybuilding and martial right. arts products and stuff. Totally blew it. Missed it. Got got scooped by you know other folks who did it, like bodybuilding.com yeah. and so on. Yeah. So, um, oh well. You know, what can you say except oh well and you go on. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. Well and it's yeah, it is so sad how it's like it takes usually it takes I mean, I'm just talking from experience. It takes yeah. like four times before I'm like, yeah. oh, maybe now you'll finally yeah. understand yep. what you were screwing up on that entire time. Yeah. 
And, yeah. and, and the other thing that I would say, because this is, again, thinking of, you know, thinking of the folks who may be listening and may be thinking about starting things or in the process of mm-hmm. doing it, um, there, there are several things. One is being completely ready to just let go of something. Um, when it doesn't seem like it's working, that's the old, you can't okay. run a three-legged okay. horse. But perhaps even more importantly, it's find partners who are good at the things that you're not, which is a duh. It sounds like, well, of course, but it didn't occur to me to say, I'm really good at designing and product development and conceptual and even understanding what the market may need. I suck at trying to sell it. Sell it? Yes. And so hmm. the thing would have been to go find someone and create the appropriate team where those two strengths could have built something even bigger. So anyway, mm. you know, there are lessons learned along the way. Yeah, but that yeah. sounds exactly like, yeah, that sounds exactly like me. Uh, it's like, oh, I can do this, but like everything else I'm terrible at, you know? Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. Inc- So you went from, so I, <laughs> what was the chapter okay. after so, those, uh, what uh, are we at? Legend, nine, legend or nine, nine, yeah. nine, well, nine things you've yeah. accomplished when yeah. you're... So what was so, what was the next anyway, so the bo- the, okay so the, the the book as a whole was called conditioning to win and one more quick anecdote because please, this this again please. this again goes to the idea that you have to keep pushing forward no matter what especially if you believe in the thing that you're doing uh-huh. I knew that the information in the book was really useful because I sold like five thousand copies of the whole big manuscript right. just in the Bay Area while I was up there to people who by word of mouth heard about it. When I sent it around to publishers, I was fully ready for rejection because, you know, it happens. But I got stupid rejections. I got rejections like, there are too many words here. Athletes just want to look at pictures they don't want to read, and, which is, huh. like, not true. Yeah, yeah, and I knew they were wrong. So anyway, yes, that yes. ultimately led to this idea of there's just got to be a better way to sell this, which right. led to pulling out the abdominal chapter since that's a thing that many people are interested in. Right. And Legendary focusing apps. on that and trying to push that forward, yes. which then blossomed into a whole bunch of very well-executed concepts with cool titles like that, or at least good sales yeah, titles. Like yeah, yeah. there was Power Forearms and um, um, uh, Maximum Calves and Secrets of Advanced Bodybuilders. Uh, and uh, actually one that did extremely well was the 7-Minute Rotator Cuff Solution, which was a play on the, there was a, a novel out at that time called The 7% Solution about um, cocaine use in Sherlock oh, Holmes okay, novels. Okay. And <laughs> so it was a play on that title. But Legendary Abs, Secrets of Advanced Bodybuilders, and the 7-Minute Percent Rotator Solution were about 80% of the publishing company's sales. Okay. And then there okay. were, as usual, 300 other products that were the rest. Yeah, <laughs> so, right, right, right. Standard standard 80 20 yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, then, so so that was that chapter uh-huh. and so now we have an overlap and the overlap is that while the publishing company was happening and um, and the market was changing the internet was coming there were, there were other things happening that that sort of contributed to the fact that that company ultimately didn't was not a big payoff it was extremely profitable and did extremely well for its 14 years but there was no end moment payoff because again my first significant business and I didn't know about watch the market cycles and when you you hit that peak sell it sell the company to someone else some other player in that space mm-hmm. that's trying to build their thing right rather than play it out until it dies because yeah, okay. <laughs> play it out until it dies is not a good strategy right, right, at all right. but uh, <laughs> so um, but so while the because think let's see what was happening what happened um, infomercials hit television and when infomercials hit television and there were 
um, you know, uh, I, I will be judgmental. Crappy devices to do things like help you condition abs, which really were no more effective than not using those devices yeah, at all. Right. But they right. looked like they were going to do the yeah, work for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We lost a good percentage of our audience because it became clear that a good percentage of our audience was only our audience because we offered what looked like the only solution. And as soon as it looked like there was a solution that was not going to involve work and maybe would even work while you slept, you know, some of the supplements that came out, yeah, or like the audience went, that's what we want. <laughs> and so anyway, the sales started to fall off and ultimately, um, the publishing company kind of petered out. But while it was going along toward the end, um, I started consulting with folks like Verizon and the Jay Peterman company that we would know in Nordstrom yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of big magazines and one of the biggest uh, print printers in the company, R.R. Donnelly, with how to improve their workflow because they were coming to our publishing company and saying, you guys are getting a four-color catalog out in like four weeks, and it takes everybody else six to eight at minimum, and usually yeah. 12. How are you doing that? And so I ended up consulting in the technology of automating your digital imaging workflow, if you had such a thing. And that then, so as the publishing company was going down, the engineering company, which had only had one project at the beginning, that EDS electronic yeah, yeah, yeah. submission thing, started going up, and it turned into a pretty you know, ongoing concern yeah. as a computer consulting company, which then went on for, actually that one's still ongoing. I still do a lot of work under that, um, under that umbrella. Um, and, uh, and I've sort of gotten into this pattern of get involved with a company like, well, like Health for Life was, that was the published company uh -huh, initially. Uh -huh. That one was, was mine, so it wasn't quite the same thing as getting involved with someone else's thing. But get involved, and then in between, go back to consulting. And then when another company happens, do the company thing for a while. And so in the middle of the, the consulting company gaining momentum again, um, an old client of mine uh, came to me, and, and he, it, was, it was kind of a sad moment for him. His dad had developed Alzheimer's, and he was trying to figure out a way to create a product that would provide cognitive stimulation um, even to someone who had mild to moderate mm -hmm. dementia and mm -hmm. couldn't do a lot of things. And so we, I ended up designing a prototype for him and that project, I mean, the Health for Life, one of the things that characterized Health for Life is that we were doing something that was really positively affecting people's lives. It wasn't just a great way to make money. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just technically interesting, it was actually changing the way people were able to approach and deal with their own lives. Mm -hmm. And th the, the cognitive project, Dacum, mm -hmm. looked like it had the potential certainly to do the same thing and to have both the potential to be a, 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 a good return for shareholders, mm -hmm. but also to be really making a significant difference again hmm. for a population that didn't have a lot of people really trying to do something yeah, for them because right, there's right. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've you've heard the bad side of senior living which is really a lot like just warehousing people mm -hmm. and and so we were trying to make that a better experience so anyway that looked mm -hmm. interesting enough that i asked the guy if we could like start a company together and mm -hmm. so that was then that was 2003 we went out and raised the money together um Neither one of us had ever raised serious money before. We yeah. raised three million initially, and then another ten. How, how did that look? How uh, did how did that process look? Um, that was uh, looked exactly like everything you see in every movie about entrepreneurship. Okay. So that meant you go to a million meetings, and everybody goes, "Ah, what a stupid idea!" <laughs> and then eventually, one person says, "You know, that actually sounds kind of interesting." So, mm. and in the middle, you go through all of the um, all of the 
the, the crazy stuff. So this was a product that was all about the presentation of content in sort of a game form um, so that somebody could have a game-like experience that provided cognitive stimulation in what are called cognitive domains. Those are the different areas of cognition, like calculation and uh, language and, and so okay. on. There are a number right. of like, visual spatial capability and so on. Yeah. Um, so the product was basically a huge amount of content that was presented based on some algorithms that were detecting how you were doing in these different domains, mm -hmm. um, which I have a patent on. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and, um, so, but, but basically it was that. It was basically a multimedia content project that was driven by a set of rules and a, a way to sense, to feel, feel into based on results how someone was doing right. and what they needed to see next. Mm -hmm. So we would go to VC meetings and the VCs would say, that's a really good idea, but do you really need that content? And it was like, you're kind of missing the point. Yeah, 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 <laughs> so yeah. there's just a lot of, of frustration that goes along with the whole process of trying to raise money, especially if you're trying to do something different than what's been done before. Uh -huh. If you can say, this is Facebook, but it's green, they get it. But a, this hasn't been done before, and it's, it does this thing which you've never heard of, that doesn't sit well in VC. Of course, right. It's yeah. just like it's just like they they just lack like imagination. Yeah. Or it's like yeah, they only they they want it as easy as possible. Right. It's like oh, this yeah. is what this is, and there's no there's nothing yep. else to it. Take it at face value. Yeah. You know exactly. I would I would I would um, I would blue pencil one word. I would say they want it as safe as possible. They right, want they right. right. They right, want right. to be investing in things that have already been proven. Yeah. Exactly. And that's you know in many cases why. I mean, there are two things. There's private equity. There's there's venture capital and there's private equity. And venture is more of a risk-based thing. That's more what you associate mm -hmm. with startups. Private equity is the ones where they will invest in companies that already, already have, have right. Money. They have a run rate, and that is clearly a we want to be safe, and we think it's a heck of a lot yeah, safer. Yeah, You're yeah. already making five million or ten million a year. Right, that's right. where we want to put our money. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. you know, the, the the more successful you, it's what you always hear. The more successful you are, the easier it is to get the money. When you really, really need it, you're trying then to find someone who's who, willing to take a risk. Right, is willing right, to take the risk right. and gets it. You know, there was a, one of my, my favorite entrepreneur money raising stories is the story of the founder of Dropbox, who mm. in one of his meetings, you know, he, he was in a meeting and the after pre presenting, the guy on the other side of the table with the deep pockets said, but there are lots of these companies around that are doing on, st online storage. Mm -hmm. well, you know, what, why you? And the, the, the founder of Dropbox said, uh, are you using any of them? And the guy said, no. He said, that's why. <laughs> so, you know, there the, the, was, again, the focus on the difference in the experience. And, huh. the, you know, you can, have, you can have MP3 players, but until there's an iPod, it's, it's just not the same thing. That's so true. Yeah. That is so true. Hmm. And so where did that... Once you got that funding or you finally took off with right. the... Right. Uh... What, what actually ended up happening was that after um, lots of meetings and some minor success, one of our potential customers for this product, a, a really wonderful group called Front Porch that has nonprofit um, senior living mm -hmm. centers. They have a number of them and they, they actually have a number of different sort of sub companies under them. But they, in, in a meeting where we presented to them, we were presenting to them less for money and more for we'd like to beta to test in your you communities. Right, and yes. this is what we're doing and we wanted to see if you guys would be interested. And after the meeting, the co-CEOs of that company came up to us and said, we really want what you're doing and we want you to stop raising money. Here's the money. So you can go just do this thing. And so Whoa. basically that first 
that first tranche came from them. That's really cool. Yeah. That's so really it was. cool. Yep. Yeah, it goes to show that people who actually have like a, a care for what right. you're doing rather exactly. than like a, a money interest. Yeah, those yeah. are the people. Right, and <laughs> they were the they were are. a special case of that. They were you know, they were there are many senior living companies are really real estate companies when you get up the, yeah. the hierarchy yeah, yeah, of ownership. Yeah. And so there's a there's a lot of distance between the actual owners and the folks who are in the in the communities right, doing the right. work, and it's very hard to breach that gap. Hmm. With front porch, that gap doesn't exist okay. because they They're own the them. They right. are the same, right, and right. they actually are people who truly care. I mean, That's really, cool. just remarkable people. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. And so, where what is that doing now? Uh, that it's still around. It. Um, Another business kind of oh there it is yeah, story. Yeah. Um, the senior living industry is is funded largely by people's ability to sell their homes. We mm. were trying to raise the next big round in two thousand and eight. <laughs> and what happened in two thousand eight, Jerry? Yeah, like well, <laughs> so anyway, the um, that the 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 economic downturn, shall we say, oh you know, just gosh. sucked the life oh out of it. Gosh. And yeah. so all yeah. sorts of customers who had budgeted us for said we can't do it now. And so that that didn't kill it. The company is actually still around, but it did prevent the continued acceleration. And so Dacom is still actually looking for a new home. It's looking for another company with whom it can join yeah. to to be able to carry forward the mission. Holy cow, and what a strange like inverse that the man, I'm using that word a lot. I just <laughs> learned it. Um yeah, I learned it I think yesterday. Um, but how real estate happened to be yeah. I don't want to say downfall, but that was the different that made yeah. a huge difference because people were trying to sell their houses. What a thing that like Right. How would you see that coming? And you can't. You know? And that's the yeah. bottom line is that sometimes you just can't. Sometimes all the best planning in the world. You, you know, can't. There there's it is. something right. that is and, so far out. Yeah. And I'm not in any way saying that there might not have been a way around that we just weren't experienced enough to know how to do. Yeah. Um, so it's not like I want to say it was all the rest of the world's right, fault. Right, it's not right. that. But it was a really interesting you know, coincidence yes, of events that yes. completely shifted the course of a trajectory that we were on at okay. that moment. Okay. So. And so what other 18 things were you doing while that was happening? <laughs> um, actually not as much during that period. Um, because that was, that was a, that was a big effort. The, that, that the, 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 the units themselves that are involved in this needed to be able to communicate. Let me start in a different place. There was a mandate from the communities when we started that they wanted multiple of these units to be able to be in their facilities so uh -huh. that if they had a large um, a population that many right. people could be using simultaneously. Hmm. They, and, but they didn't want the units have to have to be connected to the internet during the day. So we had a, you know, a sort of an interesting communication thing to be able to, uh, oh, and they wanted anybody to be able to sit down at any machine at any time and pick up their experience where they had left off right, another one. Right, right. So there was some interesting communication stuff that had to happen with the mm. units talking to each other and then the units sending the user data up to us at yeah. the end of the day and then so it could be bounced back down if for some reason the units in the community couldn't talk to each other because there was a network problem yeah. or something. So there were many aspects to the Dacom project. There was the 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 custom version of the Linux OS, which had to run on the device mm. itself, which we had to, it was, it was based on Ubuntu Linux, but it was a proprietary 
reworking that we did. Okay. So there was that. There was the user experience portion of it. There was the creation of the content, which by the end was over 300 hours worth of content <laughs> at five levels of difficulty across the six cognitive domains. It was an interesting development maker. It's matrix. like a whole, like, it was. It's like a whole storyline. Right. You're that, getting to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so because it was that, that was not a situation like working in the in recording studio where when you weren't in the recording studio there wasn't like wasn't homework to do yeah there wasn't yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah, you could yeah. you could do other things yeah right. i couldn't do other things when i was doing this there was between the fact that i i was i wrote the the user interface portion of it myself i was just gonna ask yeah. who was it who was designing the physical so, so game I, that was you doing that as well there are two aspects to the designing the game one of them is the conceptualizing of the actual experience what it looks like which which kind of which to, one way of, of of getting an idea of what that that is it's kind of like taking standard neurological tests and turning them into fun games okay because the the tests actually do a really good job of isolating specific kinds of cognition you might be mm. addressing so that was a way, that was a way to get a handle on that so we had a content team whose whose job it was to do that conceptualizing to do and from the, from from the, the right, mind to go, games right. to the actual game. Or right, not, yeah, from me, the, the tests, games, the cognitive right. tests. Not, not all of them were like that, but it was, it was one path, was to, to start with these existing instruments and then conceptualize a game experience based on them. Okay. And um, uh, actually, my longtime partner in music was the editorial director of, of Dacom along with hmm. me, and he was the one who was in charge of doing all of that, and he had about oh. seven or eight people under him who actually did a lot of the art and the... And the um, the, the taking it from a wireframe concept to an actual execution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. But then there was the whole code aspect of it that had to work. And that was, and, that was you. And that was me. And okay. so, so I, was, I was the system architect for the whole thing. This is, this is how we're going to do it. These are how the pieces are going to fit together. This is how we're going to do the digital asset management of the, what literally were hundreds of thousands of digital images and audio clips, because everything you saw had audio that went along with it. Mm -hmm. And it's very much like current game development. It was, yeah, it, it sounds but it like was, it. But it was before that. So, That's remarkable. Yeah. So there were, there were all of those pieces. And uh, uh, so I was... I, the, the overarcher in terms of, of the, the basic design. And then I project managed the entire group. There were basically five teams involved in different, the different big technical areas. And then I wrote the interface because I just like writing interfaces. It's fun. Just on the side. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, but that's why I wasn't doing anything else. <laughs> so that is, yeah. that's remarkable. Yeah. And so there was no, there was no software that you were using no. to create. This was all from scratch. It was scratch. all from scratch. I actually wrote all the workflow tools too. This goes back to that whole consulting thing I was talking about before, where we were, you know, I was doing consulting for yeah, big right, publishing right, companies right. and such. That experience was what was necessary to then be able to write all of the stuff necessary to automate the workflow. Okay. Because otherwise, you're left with. You know, the recording the little bits of audio and trying to manually reserial, you know, change the file names to being serial numbers and not screw up and coordinate those with the code and get that number into the database. Oh, that gosh. would have been, it would have not been possible. Yes, yes. So was yeah. that like the, sorry, I'm just so ignorant when it comes to this stuff, but what you used to create that ah. interface, was that something that continuously got used whether it was by you or from other companies like like how you gotcha. built right. it how you built it was that something that continuously was used does that make sense I, are you saying uh, were other people using the same tools to yes the same or okay. was was something that you created used 
further down the line by somebody else. Not by somebody else, but was but it, the, the tools that we created were the tools used to create the entire 300 hours of content internally. Okay, right, right, yeah. okay, got because, it. Got because it, got because it. this one, one of the not not to get too far off in the technical weeds. Yes, yes, but oh, please, but, please, but, by all one, means. but one of the the um, the secrets to success is that for this kind of thing, for automating a workflow in a company. 90% or even 95% is not good enough. You have to build the thing that lets you do the absolute specific thing you are trying to accomplish. Right. And if it only gets you 90% of the way there, you have to scrap it. You still got too many too much handwork, too much room for screw up and error. And so wow. this is really a case where unless somebody needed to do exactly the same thing, those tools wouldn't, wouldn't have work. been as useful or they would have been I a 90% solution for someone, not a hundred percent. Right, 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 right. Holy cow. Yeah. That's, that's remarkable. And so you called, it was Dacum. Dacum. That's what it's yeah. Called? It was, that was a, 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 a crashing together of the part, my, my co-founder and his wife's names. His name is Dan and her name is Kim. Okay. And so okay. he had another name, which was a nice highfalutin sounding yeah. technical name. And it was already taken at the, you know, the secretary of state yeah. we went yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. get the name. And so, they, the two of them just looked at each other in a meeting one day and said, how about take them? And so yeah. that was it. Cool. So where yeah. did, um, what year was that when okay. that was happening? So Dan started exploring the idea of building something. He built some wooden boxes with, with windows and photos in them that lit up and buttons and bells and things that his dad could use. And it was as a hmm. result of doing that and seeing how much of a difference that it made that he wanted to push that project forward. Oh. He started that process hmm. in the early 2000s, 2002, one, I think actually it was one in 2002. And then he and I started looking at the idea in 2003. That's when we built the prototype. Um, another another long long time friend and uh, associate of mine named Steve Portnoy did the original actual coding in FileMaker of all things, um, <laughs> but it it was it was the right thing. It allowed us to build a really really fast, very simple prototype. It did not it didn't understand any of the complex uh -huh. rule stuff I was yeah, talking right. about before, but. Um, uh, so uh, that happened in about 2003, and between 2003 and 2005, we were just doing a million meetings and getting refused everywhere and trying to raise mm -hmm. the money. And so the company officially began operation in July 2005. From two, it took us from 2005 to um, the end. That was July 2005. So it took us to the end of 2006 to have finished the product Largely because I had to finish the workflow tools because before we could build the content. Yes, yes. So, um, and, uh, and, and we were also working it out. Again, this is something that hadn't been done. And so uh, it, it's, really, it's really interesting. One of the things that, there, there is an old saying that there are only a couple of things that are hard in computer programming, in computer science. I'm only gonna name one of them because the other ones are just gonna be gobbledygook. But the one that, that is, is not is naming things. If you don't carefully name the, the, the parts of your code, the, the actual variables in your code and the names of the modules and the stuff, you get off into mass confusion and mess. And so there was a long period at the beginning of this project where this absolutely remarkable intern who went on to become a, a neurosurgeon after she left us. As it usually yeah, is. Right, yeah, yeah. Right. But, but she and I sat in this office for hours saying, so... We need this word that means the thing you see on screen that might be a game thing or it might not be a game thing. It might be a score screen or it might be a counter. What are we going to call that 
thing. And because, you know, you, you can't call it screen thing. That yeah. wasn't quite right either. And so we had to derive this whole lexicon that, that was the, the terms that made sense in the context of what we were building to be able to talk about it. And then those then became the names of things in the code and so on. Um, but we couldn't have built the product without doing the work of thinking about what things needed to be right, named. Right. It just wouldn't have happened. It was just, it was too complicated and it would just then throw up your hands in despair and run and jump in the ocean. Was that something you had to learn yourself or was that something that somebody told you or you uh, read? The, well, the, 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 the saying that naming is mm-hmm. one of the hard things mm-hmm. in computer, that already exists. And so that sort of cues you that that's something you should think about. Okay. So it did. <laughs> but it also goes back to the earlier consulting. That whole thing with digital imaging and stuff centers around an area of technology called digital asset management. And that has to do with building a structure in which all kinds of digital assets, images and audio and and so on, can all be kept. And that also is really dependent on naming. And so my experience with having to do naming thinking about that was the setup for them being able to do it later and okay. in a better way with computer stuff. Okay, got it, got stuff. it, got it, got it. And so you said that was 2006. Yeah, so that was right. So it took, so money 2005, product in summer of 2005, mm-hmm. product basically finished by the end of 2006 and released into the senior living market, mm-hmm. especially that initial customer I was talking about mm-hmm. that was our, that very graciously and generously funded us yeah. <laughs> to start with. Um, and so then we, we, we had a sales team that went around the country. One guy in particular, Rick Sill, who did a remarkable job um, getting the industry to begin to accept this when the initial response is brain fitness, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you, when you yeah. go in and, um, and you, you also you also run into a lot of attitude like, hey, if it's not food and it's not the pool, we don't want to spend any money on it. Huh. So um, anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other yeah the, the, right. yeah the the ethical anyway I won't go there. <laughs> but um, you can yeah we're, we can you're in we'll, good company. We're okay yeah we'll, 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 we'll see keep if, our we, mouth, if we we'll lead back around. So, yeah right yeah <laughs> yeah no I'm not worried about it so much in that sense. It's just it. it that will inevitably lead into a discussion of current politics, oh, and I don't know if we want to do that. So, <laughs> anyway, so there was that period of sales, and things were, were beginning to ramp up, and our numbers were looking pretty good in terms of the adoption rates and so on. And that takes us up until about 2007 ish, when we were out trying to raise money again, mm-hmm. which we did actually. We we were able to raise that other 10 million. Um, it was a from a business perspective, it was kind of a mismatch. We ended up raising it from a private equity firm. And remember, right, they were they're the, the ones who want you to already have a yeah, run rate. Yeah, yeah. We did not have a run rate. We had sales and we had some money, but we did not have what they would typically consider their baseline, which would have been, I think, $5 million a year. And yeah. We weren't there yet. Yeah. Um, and they they liked what we were doing enough that they um, they, they came on and, and you know, they gave us the, the additional 10 in 2007 and so we were just ramping up the sales force and everything else when 2008 hit and it wasn't like uh, a sledgehammer but it was like someone had thrown slow. sand in the gears <laughs> yeah, and so right. instead of the trajectory happening we did what happens to the, it's, it's the the source of startup failure in so many cases we ended up burning through a lot of the money because the sales weren't coming in along the projected yeah, trajectory right, based right. on the way they had been coming in uh, okay and um, and one of the other things about a private equity and venture, this is actually the same for both of them, and it's a thing to know when you're, when you're doing a startup. They expect you to scale quickly. 
there, there are very few. There are some venture firms that understand that you it, it, it takes you some time, time and yeah. you're going to have some false starts. There's some. There are not private equity firms that think that. Private mm. equity firms are, we give you money, you scale now. That's just the way it works. Yeah. And so for all, for all my arguing that what we should be doing is scaling slowly and seeing what the market was liking and not liking. They were like, no, spend all the money, spend it now. Big Salesforce, go out, do this quickly, get it done. And the net result was when you take that along with what happened in 2008, it just, it yeah. just yeah, burned through the money. Hmm. And so, uh, and again, the company's still alive and we were able to raise some more and some other things happened, but it was not, the, again, the big payoff that everyone was hoping for. All right. Right. And for a number of reasons, but uh, but a really big one was the downturn. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. oh no, why? <laughs> so oh, where well. is where did that leave you after okay. that? So that um, sorry, then, I feel like I'm just like, and then what? I what? I'm not doing that. <laughs> no, no, I, I am. Um, I, I'm. This is remarkable. Yeah, no, no, you're not at all. I think actually, it's this is, this is great fun. Good, so, good. Uh, good. Um, it was that that same pattern. So company consulting, company consulting. So back again, basically mm -hmm. to doing freelance projects. Okay. We we I mean the what what actually there, there was some discussion that Dacom could not continue, and so uh, I was the CFO by the way too. And so I I had done financial. We did two financial plans. We survive. We don't survive, and we have to shut down after X number of of months, mm -hmm. and. The uh, what always happens, so you have to cut back on the staff and you cut back on your efforts, and suddenly the company was profitable. It was much smaller, but it was profitable. That was in 2014 that happened. Mm. So here we are five years later, and Dacom is actually doing better than it was back then. Um, it's not operating on the same scale that it was, but the, the, the customers still love the product. The users absolutely, I mean, it's like you're going to take this out of my cold, dead hands kind of a thing. And so... Your you know, baby. Yeah, right, yes. And we, we were a little lucky in that one of the uh, the, the managing partner of, of the private equity firm, his dad was getting older and wanted something to help him with his cognition. And uh, so, because the managing partner knew we had this, he got it for his dad. Hmm. And apparently his dad has called him every day since then. This was like Whoa. six, seven years ago, telling him how great Dacom is. And so Whoa. I think that, you know, that, that you, you, you can't buy that kind of internal no, politicking. It was a really wonderful thing. No, absolutely but not. That I, is, yeah. that's, that's why you do it. Yeah. You know, right. it has to be. Yeah. And that's the way it is. That's the reason the company's still around is that the customers who have it, love it. They really, it makes a real difference. It's not just... A, one one more anecdote on the senior please, living side, and please. then we can go no, off into a different no, direction. Please, but uh, please, please. so early on, um, in in one of the one of the communities, we we got this email from a caregiver who works in the community who said, "I have to tell you this story. We just got we've got we have Dacom in. We've had it in for a few months. I have a person who's in moderately advanced dementia who has been." sequestering herself in her room because she's uncomfortable with trying to deal with people and she's uncomfortable with her declining capabilities. And she actually has not said a word in the last year. Um, she'll, she'll occasionally come out, but she basically has just not said anything. And she mm -hmm. lets me lead her out to do the Dacom um, experience. And she said, after doing it for two months, this woman turned to the caregiver and said, you know, Bev, I've always wanted to play the piano since I was a little girl and started talking again, and that was it. And it was triggered by 
all of the music and the multimedia aspects of the program that basically gave her confidence again in her ability to, to interact with the world. So, wow. and that's what that product does. So it's a, it does a real thing for a big community of people. And, um, and hence, it has survived in that sense because the folks who have it don't want it to go away. And so with any luck, it will continue and something will happen and we will find an appropriate partner to join with so that it can, it can scale again significantly. Holy cow, Jerry. That sounds, that sounds very fulfilling. It is. You know, that's, I'm not going to lie. When I think of, yeah, when I think of software, it is the, you know, it's the tech side yep. or what, you know, it's, it's the, it's the thing that nobody sees. But when you hear stories like that, it's got to be yep. very worth it. I would imagine. Com- completely. That's amazing. Yep. That's and amazing. It, it one, one other, just one final comment on that. So since the company has had to sort of scale back to a smaller size, I had been very worried at the beginning of that that I would basically eventually, over time, lose my engineers by attrition. They were mm. all kind of operating on a retainer basis, but they kind of they had stayed with it or said they would stay with it for some period of time. All of them, every single one, is still with us five years later. They're all there. Based and all, they're just still getting their their retainer fees yeah. and, and such on, but it's not it's not nearly what they should be making for the mm. amount of effort that they continue to contribute right. to keeping the product evolving. Because we've actually done work on it; it mm-hmm. hasn't just been sitting. We've yeah, yeah, we created yeah. the iPad version of it, and we've done you know a bunch of other things. That's and, great. Uh, yeah. That's absolutely great. And so, what are you working on right now? <laughs> um, b- a bunch of software projects. So, yeah. back, so as I say, back to sort of basically mm-hmm. consulting freelance. And also trying to get in as much music as I possibly can. Good, good, good. So good. yes, recording every Tuesday nights. I don't care what else is happening, recording every Tuesday nights. But uh, um, there's a, a, a music project that, we've, that I've been working on for, also it's been about four years. Not that there's been four years of work involved, but the concept emerged four years ago. And uh, the group that was involved in this, um, <laughs> it's another one of those stories. So the, this, there was... Where do, I'm going to figure out where, I'm going to, where to start this. Okay, so there is a group. The group has in it, among other things, an engineer who, over the course of the last 10 or 15 years, has gone around the country recording the top cover bands. He saw Zepp again at the, the House of Blues on Sunset Boulevard, didn't know what it was, went in, saw them, thought, wow, these guys are really great, and went up and talked to them after the show and said... Um, you guys are wonderful. Do you have a record? And they, they, I mean, what do you do if your fans want your music? And they said, well, we just, you know, we tell them to go to iTunes and buy Zeppelin. Yeah. And so he said, look, come to my <laughs> studio and I will record you for free and you can have product that you can then sell at your shows. Um, and that actually worked out very successfully. The unstated aspect of that is that he then owns those masters. You know, he, the, so mm-hmm. over the course of the next 10 years, he builds up this fantastic library of all of music from all the best cover bands across the country, uh-huh. most, from mostly classic rock acts, but some others as well. And this group got together to try to figure out what they could do to monetize that stuff. He was already selling on iTunes. It did very well for a long time until Apple sort of changed the ground rules. Yeah, yeah, I won't yeah. go into that story right now. But um, So they had this, this resource, and they started thinking, Maybe we can maybe we can build some sort of app with this because we have something that is virtually impossible to get. We have stems. We have the broken up individual tracks that make up these songs because we recorded these. And so 
the world is full of being able to listen to stereo masters. That's what you're hearing when you listen on Spotify mm -hmm. or whatever. That's you know you you typically do not have the individual guitar track from Stairway to Heaven and the bass track from Stairway to Heaven and the drums from Stairway yes, to Heaven and so on. But we do. They're not the originals. They're covers, but they are exceptionally good covers. And so they the they were thinking perhaps there's some way we can build an app that lets users have the experience of being able to remix these. And they were, um, they were talking to, they were starting to talk to developers. We're not finding their footing because they'd never built anything before. Mm. And the, this guy who was the, was one of the guys in the group is the father of a friend of my son's from grammar school. So he okay. and I kind of peripherally knew each other. He yeah, knew I yeah. did something in computers. Yeah. He didn't know that I had a musical background at all. He knew right. something about the computers. And so he, he called me one afternoon to talk about the project. And I said, look, if you want, I can help you vet these companies you're talking to because you can get really, really, really screwed by development companies. Um, if, depending on how they're set up. There's some yeah. really great ones, but there's some other ones where you're just not going to get a lot of bang out of your buck. And so I started doing that. And then I would report to them about findings and thinking about how we were going to have to structure this. And at some point, he just said, can't you just build this for us? I said, I can do that, but you're going to lose your sort of overseer. You're going to lose your, your, your um, dis disinterested, objective observer telling you these are the right people to work with. Because yeah. I can't really tell you, yes, you should use me. Yeah. You know, I, can, I can't. I can I can tell you that, but it's not saying not saying it the same way I'm saying it about don't use them, maybe use them. So he said, I don't care. And so anyway, I ended up building that for them. And there was a, an initial phase of work, and then there was a break while they were trying to figure out exactly what to do with the project. And then there was some more money raised, and that project is in final review at the App Store and should be released probably tomorrow, for all I know, I and mean, within the next day or two. Whoa. Yeah. Holy cow, congratulations. So, yeah. Thank I, you. That's crazy. So, yeah. so Apple is checking that out right now? That's or the way it works. When you, when you build it, when you're a developer and you're going to mm -hmm. release in the App Store, mm -hmm. the all apps are submitted to Apple as part of the process. Okay. They review and they either accept and it gets released or they push it back to you and say, you have to fix things, change things. Okay, you, and, the, right. and that app is the individual tracks of the well, mixing? Well, the, the app lets you, I mean, in, 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 in five or six phrases, it lets you pick a hit song, download and remix it, add your own vocals or other instrument tracks if you want. You can record other tracks. Um, uh, uh, add what are called smash tracks. The app is called Smash Maker. And hmm. smash tracks are other tracks that fit the song, other instrument tracks that the group has recorded. The, the, mm -hmm. the engineer is mm -hmm. so, so that folks who are remixing, if they're not musicians and they can't record their own tracks, they can actually create a remix that doesn't sound exactly like the original song, but sounds like it's professionally recorded because all the tracks fit together. And so you can you can yank out the the original bass part and use a new bass part that we've supplied that's a synth bass as opposed to the original string bass or uh -huh. I mean electric bass or whatever. Right. And um, so it lets you do those things and then add a video and share. And so it's the whole end end thing. But you can do that process if you want to. You can do it in like thirty seconds. It's very very quick. And very, very fluid and easy. The whole idea was to make this a simple enough thing that non-musicians and even folks who had never played with a DJ app could still pull the thing out and figure out, just by looking at it, how it worked and, and do this. That's really interesting. Yeah. 
That's cool. So, That's so, really cool. And yeah. so did you get to do any of the musical stuff? No, I, unfortunately not. I, I would have loved to, but again, the project was just too big. And yeah. so the, the, we, we basically have the music side of it. And then um, we, my, my, my team, it's my three-person team that I just said before, my, my very close friend Charles in, in Kentucky, and uh, Amanda, my designer, who's uh, actually now on the, on the East Coast. She used to live in Los Angeles, so we're a, we're a tri-state company now. That's awesome. Um, yeah, That's the three great. of us basically did the whole, the whole project. Holy cow, holy cow. And you met those engineers from doing... The, well, the engineer... Okay, so this is kind of a weird story also... I hope I'm not like going too far afield in too many all. different directions. Not okay, so um, I I had a, very, a a famous math professor uncle who is unfortunately no longer with us, named Serge Lang, and um, when, uh, he taught at Yale, he taught at Berkeley. When I went to do a particular aspect of the Dacum project, I needed a particular kind of expertise, and searched the internet, found someone had written a book on this particular technology that we needed, didn't know him, just called him. His name is Charles Yeomans. He's my friend in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And said, would you be interested in freelancing for us or you know, perhaps more mm -hmm. at some point? And in the course of the conversation, we found out a couple of interesting things. He had used all of the books that I had written for Health for Life as part of his training because he Whoa. was a very high-ranking Aikido practitioner. Whoa. And he was a math PhD and had trained under my uncle. So, so we had this just you know, crazy, crazy coincidence thing. Yeah. But anyway, we've become you know very very good friends and been working together as ever since. That was two thousand and five. Wow. So yeah, that's really cool. Yep, that's really cool. And so <laughs> I wanna, I do wanna talk about your music and your martial arts. Okay. Well. So when you started that band, yep. when, when you were on tour, you how old were you when you were doing that? I was fifteen. You were fifteen so, yeah. on tour. Yeah. So I, 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 I had. I went to Harvard in the Valley, and this was before it was Harvard-Westlake. Of course, I had to miss the co-ed years. My, my, grandpa, so. <laughs> my grandpa went to, to Harvard. Went to Harvard. Okay. Yeah. What, military years or in the in-between? There were three, it there were four it phases. Been, it would have been military. military. Okay. Yeah, it would have been military. Yeah, so I was in the in-between. I missed the military. I was okay. in the in-between years, but before it went co-ed when it, when it joined oh, Westlake. Okay, okay. So. I didn't even know it, it went through those phases. Yeah. I just saw the school when it's, what is that? Laurel, or, uh, when it was in Cold, Cold, Cold Water Canyon. Cold Water, right. right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I grew up in Laurel Canyon. and so, Oh, nice. Yes, nice. Yeah, I actually grew up hearing Joni Mitchell sing in the canyon. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was just nice. incredible. Where in where off Laurel Canyon? Um, my, uh, our house was on the bottom. There is, uh, at, at the base of Laurel, of, of Laurel, on the Hollywood side, there's a big Mount Olympus sign. And the, at that point of the Mount Olympus sign, Laurel Canyon splits. And there's big yes, Laurel Canyon yes, and little yes, Laurel Canyon. Yes, 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 And a little further up, there's a, the, country, the famous country store of Laurel Canyon. Uh -huh. Halfway between the Mount Olympus sign and the, the country store is a little street called Honey Drive off of Little Laurel Canyon. And I grew up in a house on that corner that's that my mom still like, lives in. That's where you were like raised? Yeah, that's where I was raised. Oh, wow. Okay. And I had okay. lots of friends all over the canyon. And so there were times when I was like up Lookout Mountain and I was really close to Joni Mitchell's house. And I used to hear her singing. That's great. <laughs> and it was just, yeah. Sorry, sorry. So, totally no, that's quite all right. So anyway, so so the thing is, so I was in Laurel Canyon. I would go up Laurel Canyon across mm -hmm. Mall Hunt yeah, and yeah, down yeah. to Coldwater mm -hmm. to, to go to Harvard. And... Um, uh, how do we get? Actually, I forgot how we got into Harvard. How did we get to high school? How did we get to high? Uh, oh, you were playing in the band. Oh, that's right. Okay, the, okay, the band. So, um, um, Harvard was toying with the idea of having a 
senior, call it internship year, whereas a senior you could go off and do different things. They had not started the program yet, but I had finished all of my requirements at the end of my junior year to graduate. And so I went to them and said, you know, I would be a really good test case for your intern program. I'm in a band, we're already touring, we have an opportunity to make a record, I've already got my college admission, how about I spend my senior year on the road as, and we call it part of this program? And they said yes. So basically I spent... Jerry, you, know. you are a crazy man. <laughs> you are a crazy man. I'm thinking of where I was when I was like 17 and I was like trying to get as many off campuses as possible or I just like wasn't going to school. Up. Yeah. Well, I, I accomplished the same thing. I did it by going on the road my yeah, entire Yeah, however you want to say it. Yes. Yeah. So got to the same place. So which was a, which was a good thing. It was it was really great. So fun. you went on tour as an intern, or, I, or I like went, no, or? I went on tour. I was I was just a member of this band. Oh, there were, there were I four see, of us. I, see, I was I the young one. It the we were uh, at that point 15, 19, 20, 21. Wow. And so they were like wow. my older brothers, and we were very good friends. Um, and my mom trusted them all. And so I've never been completely sure whether this was oh fantastic, I'm getting him out of the house, yeah. or whether no, this is a really good experience toward life, and I really trust these guys. But <laughs> doesn't for, matter. It doesn't we don't matter. Need to ask One way or the other, I went on the road <laughs> and uh, um, had a remarkable four years. We started on a very low end. We started touring the Holiday Inn circuit all around the country when there was such a thing, when there was live music in hotels, which is kind of a thing of the past for the most part. That is strange. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Is strange. And it went from there to small rock clubs and then to large rock clubs. And we were just starting to do concerts um, and other things when I decided I actually wanted to, to do something else, that I was afraid that if uh, that, you know, I, saw, I saw the writing on the wall about the uncertainty, we were good, I don't think we were great. We were, I mean, we were well received. We had a number four hit in Northern California, in the whole Northern Western United States at one point. That's awesome. Yeah, and so it wasn't like we were we were so unsuccessful that it was clear that it was a dumb thing to keep yeah, doing. It yeah. was like, well, I don't know, maybe. But I just got this bug that it was going to be a dumb thing to blow off Stanford to do. I mean, oh, I missed a little piece of the story, which was at the end of each of the four years on the road. I would call the Dean of Admissions, Dean Fred Hargaden, he's kind of a famous Dean of Admissions, and say, hi, Dean Fred, we can, we're can. we like right about to do this other thing. We're about to make our second album. We're about to do whatever else. Can I take one more year? And the first three years he said yes. The fourth year he said, you can, but you're going to have to reapply. I mean, I'll give you preferential treatment because of whatever, but you're going to have to go through the process again. And so that was kind of hanging over my head too. Huh. And <laughs> that factored into the decision. It just didn't feel like a good thing to do to blow off Stanford when after four years we hadn't really hit the majors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just decided if I put this amount of energy into something else, I can be fairly assured of being successful at it. Mm. Whereas if I stay doing what we're doing, not so clear and I'm getting giving up a really big thing if yeah. I'm going to give up yeah, yeah, going yeah. to Stanford for that. Huh. So I hope it was the right decision. I'm still doing music. Uh, and but So you never, did go to Stanford? I did, yeah. I was at Stanford for five years. Holy yeah. moly. And what were you studying so, there? I I actually finished five different undergraduate degrees only because there was huge overlap between them. So it wasn't like I did five times the coursework. It was just I was interested in lots of things. And so I finished a bunch of different things. They, of course, will only give you one degree unless you want to pay for five degrees, <laughs> which I did not want to do. <laughs> so um, my actual degree... The tour didn't yeah, pay for that? The tour did not quite pay for all of it. No, no, actually, uh, yeah, it was, no. <laughs> um, but uh, so my actual degree is in broadcast communications, 
but I got 75% of my units doing independent research in exercise physiology and biomechanics, which was the basis of writing all of that stuff for the publishing oh, company later. Okay. Okay. Me. So it really was a science. It wasn't like, Hey, I did a lot of pull-ups and this is like yeah. how you get jacked. Yeah, no, no, this was, I was, <laughs> I was incredibly lucky. There was a Stanford did not actually have a biomechanics department. Some schools do. There's a university of Austin has a, or, or, the University of Texas in Austin has a fantastic department. UCLA has a pretty good one. Stanford did not have one. But there was one guy, one professor in the Department of Education who had an, an overarching interest in that that he'd had for years. And he and I connected through a discussion. I don't even remember how it happened exactly. It was, I actually don't remember the details. We ended up in a conversation, found out we both had this interest. My, mine, because I was a, the, the true proverbial 98-pound weakling in high school at the end, and I didn't like it, and I wanted to do something about it. Uh -huh. And this, that's actually sort of the beginning of the, the martial arts and bodybuilding. I started okay. lifting uh, when I was 13 at, at Harvard and have never stopped since in you know, oh my 50, gosh. 50 years, literally. Holy so, cow. But um, anyway, so I, uh, he, we got into this conversation and, and found kindred we yeah, had a, yeah, yeah. We're kindred spirits. And he basically was like my mentor. He basically took me through a personally engineered program that, that, as I said, I got all of these units and did some wonderful stuff, like getting credit for writing the same chapter of my book from three or four different departments in the school. It was wonderful. Um, but, uh, um, but spent most of my time with him, and he was largely responsible for sort of broadening my thinking about biomechanics and how you could apply it to exercise and it was all of the stuff that came out of that that was the basis for all of the books and I tortured huh. people I tortured football players horribly when I was working on the abdominal chapter to to figure out what was going to work because the that whole side of things left turn here we go that whole side of things it turned out very quickly it became very clear to me that synergy and exercise is about exercise sequence Take the same five exercises and put them in a different order, and you get orders of magnitude greater or lesser results, depending on how you do it. Holy cow. And, but to, to have that kind of data, you have to torture people. You have to you know, take entire football teams and divide them up into groups and put them through different kinds of exercise programs and map results to see what was working and what doesn't. And um, they all eventually would scatter when they saw me coming, but that was <laughs> not, That's not really. That's a good feeling, yeah. have a football team yeah. running yeah. from yeah. you? Yeah, no, not actually. They actually were very, they, were, they actually really enjoyed it because the stuff worked. They're probably getting I mean, jacked. Legendary yeah. abs. Yeah. 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 So legendary was, was a good thing. It, 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 it was the genesis of many things after. But in any case, um, so th that, that association with him, with that particular professor, uh, Dr. Ed Ruff, um, led to... And lots of things that happened over the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah, it's you know, yeah, all of that stuff. The, yeah, that whole book. So that was basically my Stanford experience was this weird amalgam of being in the social science communications department, getting a degree in broadcast communications, also doing journalism, but then actually spending most of my time getting these units, independent units, doing research in biomechanics, and as I said, writing my first book. So I wrote that was, and, and getting credit for the individual chapters from multiple departments. So <laughs> that's that's I man I would I would absolutely love to talk about the martial arts and stuff. I didn't even really get to get into that or the music for that matter, but oh. I am so sorry. We are out of time. Okay, I know how that happens. Well, maybe we can do it again sometime. I it's hope totally so. Fun, so. <laughs> I really do hope so, Jerry. You are absolutely awesome to to have the the amount of life experience you've had and it sounds like a fairly short amount of time. <laughs> 
Remarkable. Remarkable. Seriously, we thank you so much no, for thank coming. You. Absolutely, my pleasure. Yeah, yeah absolutely, okay. Jerry. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. Thanks, guys.